I'm Brian Lowry, a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And this is Leadership for Society, a series of conversations that focuses on the most pressing issues of today. This fall, we're talking about race and power. I often tell my students that race affects many facets of life in American society and other societies around the world. Everything from what we are born with and where we live to the jobs we are likely to do. The magnitude of race and racial inequity can make addressing it feel overwhelming. It's hard to know where to start and what levers to pull. So we asked Rashad Robinson, the CEO of Color of Change, to come and talk to us about how he approaches these issues. You know, we were founded in the aftermath of a flood about 15 years ago, which was Hurricane Katrina. Katrina illustrated a lot of things that people already knew, geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impacts of what we've done to our planet and so many other sort of systems that are supposed to engage and take care of and protect us. And the ways in which structural racism undergirds all of those things. But at the heart of Katrina, no one was nervous about disappointing black people government, corporations, and media. When institutions are not nervous about disappointing your community, it doesn't matter sometimes what research report you have that illustrates all the facts and figures. It doesn't even matter what you do in the courts if you don't have the power and the ability to implement those decisions. And so you need people power and narrative change. So, you know, about 15 years ago after that uh, telethon where Kanye West said George Bush doesn't care about Black people, our founders uh, sent out an email to about 1,000 people saying Kanye was right. But that 1,000 people grew to about 1.7 million people that had taken action with us in the previous eight months at the beginning of the year. Uh, you know, during the pandemic and at the height of the uprising, we just had an outpouring of everyday people who had joined us and went from about 1.7 million um, action takers, members, as we talk about them, to about 7.2 million. And what we do is we help to translate that energy, translate that activism, and move that energy towards strategic action that can be a force multiplier for the type of change that not only makes Black people more powerful, but in so many ways um, makes um, our society work for all of us. We've talked quite a bit in this um, conversation series about the multifaceted complex nature of racism in this country. So we've talked about uh, equity and inclusion in corporations. We've talked about the wealth gap, systemic racism in tech, um, housing, You've also mentioned health. So it's in essence just intertwined with every aspect of life in the United States. How, how are you working to address these problems? Like how do you deal with such a large body of problems? What's your approach? So our approach first and foremost is to see these issues through the lens of power. And power is the ability to change the rules. And so we're constantly looking for rule change, systemic rule change, and then cultural rule change. And how we change those rules is incredibly important to the type of changes we can get that can be sort of fulfilling and can benefit us over time. So how do you decide what rules to focus on, right? So you can't do it all at once, all the time. So where do you focus or how do you decide what to choose? So it's a little bit of art, a little bit of science. So the science piece is that we are a 21st century justice organization and we have a data team and we are constantly looking at 
what are the sort of campaigns that are animating our members' participation, right? I can't force decision makers to be nervous about disappointing us if I can't actually get people to take action and I can't move them up a ladder of engagement. And then we have to be able to seize moments that happen that we don't actually design or create. I would have never predicted that Trayvon Martin would have happened and actually been the animating vehicle for actually taking on stand your ground laws and been the vehicle to get participation and force corporations to divest. And then when we win those campaigns, the next time I call those corporations to do something, they're gonna be more likely to call me back quickly because they remember that they didn't call me back quickly the last time. And I didn't just make threats, we follow through with the threats. They also remember that they had a chance to return our phone call, that we called them first. And so I do think about all of these things in terms of multiple levels of power and how um, institutions view our community. Do they feel like they stand to lose something by being on the wrong side of us? Those things also give us the ability to maybe not have to run as many campaigns or maybe start the next campaign out in a different place. Over time, trying to force um, a, a way of, of dealing with these institutions where we're, we're unignorable. Um, and by being unignorable, then we can make even bigger structural um, and political demands. But that does require us to recognize all of the things that make us powerful, right? What is our sort of unique superpower? What is our unique brand power? It means that it's why we don't take direct financial support from corporations. And quite frankly, that is part of sort of how we also operate and how we also build power and how we also think about what does it mean to change the rules. If, the, if there's a new set of rules for how a corporation has to respond to us, if they know that a $100,000 check doesn't get us to go away, but may actually make us more annoyed, then it changes the sort of relationship in terms of what we're asking for and what change actually looks like. It makes me think though about um, the balance between laying the groundwork Right. So being prepared for something to happen and then being responding nimbly when something unexpected happens. It's kind of weird because it's not really unexpected. This is an unfortunate reality of the U.S., but Trayvon Martin, Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, these things aren't really unexpected. It's just you don't know when they're going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how do you maintain that since that we're focusing here, but when something like that happens, we can pivot and and drive that, you know, drive change in that area quickly. How do you think about balancing that, doing that constant work and responding nimbly to what's happening in the moment? You know, that's the importance of long-term infrastructure and building infrastructure that can actually expand and contract when needed and take on these issues. We've built out this strategy of respond, build, pivot and scale. So respond to moments that are happening in the world because we have to, you know, Sandra Bland is found hanging in a Waller County jail cell after a traffic stop that went viral. I can't start the thing with Sandra Bland off by saying, hey, y'all, you know, this is really about bail reform. I have to start off with justice for Sandra. But if I just leave people with justice for Sandra and I don't move people towards the systemic thing, then I'm actually not making good on what could be an opening for structural change. If I start there though, I'm making demands that people are not really quite emotionally ready for it. I'm also not addressing what people actually want in that moment as a way in which to um, respond to and deal with not just Sandra, but all the ways in which Sandra could have been so many of them or so many 
of their family members. And so this respond bill pivot both allows us to sort of recognize in these moments that are big that we're responding and then we're building energy. But because we're working long-term as well, we're not just rapid response, we're working long-term on bail reform, we're working long-term on prosecutor reform, we're working long-term on a whole list of corporate accountability measures, we're working long-term on voting rights. You can respond to these moments and then still direct that energy. And that allows us over time to build that muscle where we're focusing it while also really recognizing the narrative and messaging that we're trying to underlay to move us towards structural change. Who do you think your audience is? Who are you trying to talk to? Who are you trying to change? It all depends on the campaign. Every campaign is different. Sometimes I may have just an audience of one with the campaign and we have identified that we need to create um, enough of a threat to get people to do something. So back in 2016, we are heading towards the 2016 election and we are trying to get Hillary Clinton to give back private prison money. And we went back and forth with the campaign. They were clearly slow walking us. And we knew that we needed to like, actually create a sense of urgency. So we sent the Clinton campaign two emails. One had a really smiling Hillary face, like a, you know, a headshot that she would use. And the email talked about how she had given back the private prison money. She responded. She had the most advanced criminal justice platform of any Democratic nominee. And she was giving back this money and not going to take it. And this was a good sign and yada, yada, yada. She responded to calls from the community. Um, the other was an angry Hillary, you know, a Hillary Clinton picture that she probably wouldn't use as a headshot um, with, you know, each email included a lot of footnotes, but really detailed how she had this platform about criminal justice, but was taking money from the very people that were lobbying on the other side. How could we trust this? Yada, yada, yada. We sent both emails to the Clinton campaign. And we said, we will send out one of these emails at the end of the week. You pick which one. And they picked the smiling Hillary Clinton Fitcher. They gave back the money. We were able to announce it together. But in that, my audience was the target. And we are very often trying to weave in things into those messages that will like get the target out there. See, mm -hmm. sometimes we are weaving in things that get the employees out their seat. Sometimes we're even pairing these campaigns with geo-targeted ads where we run geo-targeted ads at the corporation so that the employees, particularly black employees, young employees, um, women, LGBT, you know, folks who sort of track that they might care about sort of the issues we're raising will care and speak out. So in different places, we're thinking about different things because it is about spurring action. We are trying to make justice real, not justice rhetoric. And so to the extent that like, it's not just about getting our story out, it's about getting our story in. And by getting our story in, that means I have to get people to act. I have to get people to respond. I have to get people to do something. If we say we're gonna mobilize our members and we say we're gonna have our folks move and then we get called on it, we have to be ready to do it. And so that's why also we don't have conversations or make demands unless we've built up the energy to actually deliver. Mm -hmm. and how do you, especially right now with all the social media, how do you keep control of your message, right? So there is um, now, there's a lot of, I would call it like um, 
uh, idea jujitsu, right? You're out there trying to do social justice. They, they turn you into someone who's trying to shut down conversation as opposed to trying to have more dialogue around issues, right? That's a big part of what's going on right now. How do you engage productively in this environment where there's so much noise? The, the social media, you all are clearly trying to take advantage of this, but you're, you know, compared to some of the people you're fighting, you're small relative to some of the, the people you're going up against. How do you manage that in, in this day and age? Yeah, I will say that we, um, we like being David in the David and Goliath struggle. It's a, uh, it's a more aspirational place to be because we feel like we have more tools at our disposal. When you have a public target, right, they're trying to oftentimes shrink the conversation, make the conversation one-on-one. -on -one. As David, we're trying to expand the conversation. We're trying to bring more people in, trying to open it more up, create more visibility to the conversation. That's a dynamic that's sort of easier to engage. It provides more tools. But yeah, I mean, we are in information overload. And so the thing that's different about what we're trying to do with Color of Change and the way we use technology and tools is that at the end of the day, we are trying to build power and we are doing organizing work. And so to the extent that yes, some of these new technologies make things complicated for a moment and we have to figure out how to engage it, we have a clear theory about power a clear theory about the role of corporations and government, the role of power for black communities and our ability to express our will for a better future. And we also have a very clear theory that I think in this age of social media is very important. And it's not mistaking presence for power. And presence is visibility, awareness, retweets, it's shout outs from the stage. It's, you know, presence is not necessarily a bad thing. But when we mistake presence for power, we think we've done something that we haven't actually done. And so we will think that a black president means that we're post-racial. We will think that the celebration of a lot of uh, black celebrities means that America loves black people as much as America loves black culture. And America can love, monetize, and celebrate black culture and hate black people at the same time. And those two things don't always have to be in conflict. And so to the extent of not mistaking presence for power in this age where everyone's chasing different things on social media, it doesn't mean we don't engage in it, but what we recognize constantly, like if we're not actually changing rules, which that is power, then the presence that we build can sometimes be in service of hurting us more than helping us. But look, a lot of people think that what you have to do is win hearts and minds. That's how the way you get to fundamental change. And I hear you saying something different. Tell me why we shouldn't be fighting for hearts and minds. Um, I spent six years you know, leading the program work at GLAAD. I could write a book on changing hearts and minds because, and people have written papers and books on some of my work while I was at GLAAD in the LGBT movement. So I want to be very clear as a person who really does understand how to build campaigns to change hearts and minds, that it was always about power. And what I mean by that is in order to get to the hearts and minds, we had to make changes in media structures. We had to force um, NBC to, you know, give a, a rich white man on the Upper West Side a boyfriend 
that he would kiss because somehow they wouldn't do that at NBC. And like, that wasn't real. We had to force black LGBT characters on to the TV and hold media accountable. We had to hold media accountable for how they portrayed trans folks and how they um, made all sorts of incredibly harmful sort of um, um, narratives about HIV and AIDS. There was a whole set of things that we had to do to get to hearts and mind shift. People had to lose their jobs in order for us to get to hearts and mind shift. Um, new people had to get jobs in order for them to get their hearts and mind shift. That is a changing of power and a changing of rules, mm -hmm. you know, both written rules and unwritten rules. Written rules in terms of what will be greenlit, all sorts of transparency in terms of who gets overall deals. And that's what I mean is I think that sometimes folks think it all about that someone just became a better person. And then all of a sudden they made a different thing because then we end up in a world where racism exists, but there are no racists. Everyone is just working hard, but somehow the system just doesn't, doesn't change. These sort of issues that impact communities are just here, but you know, no one's really a racist. So we have a very robust program in Hollywood. We have a roadmap towards change of the industry that we've partnered with Michael B. Jordan on, and we're going to like studios and industry. We worked with Norman Lear School at USC to do a whole study of the crime procedural shows on air. And now we're in the writer's room of about basically every crime procedural on air, working to shift and change. But I do think, right, that once again is about power, leveraging moments, and then on the receiving end, yes, people are getting a new experience. And yes, people's hearts and minds will change. Does it matter to you? Because I hear, here's what I hear you saying. And yeah. you tell me if this is wrong. That hearts and minds, that's nice. That's an outcome. But the thing you, like, the thing you really want are levers of power. And then that will change hearts and minds. Or it won't. And even if it doesn't, if you change the power, you've gotten where you needed to go anyway. I do care about hearts and minds change. But... I know that hearts and minds change comes after power and behavior change. And that is like a natural outcome. And, mm -hmm. and if I start at hearts and minds change, I don't actually get it. It's sometimes the sort of Obama phenomenon, right? They, people thought like, oh, we've all come together. Yes, we can, right? And like, there was not the sort of analysis on power, whether it be corporate power, political power, and all those things, Mitch McConnell, sat down the street from inauguration and like, we're, we're going to make this presidency not work. We're gonna care about power. So I do care about hearts and minds, but I actually care about behavior. And that has to be my metric. And I believe that if we build power and we change behaviors, we actually create models for people to live and experience a different world and as a result, have a new normal and hearts and minds change as a result. Okay. I'm with you on that. So I'm, I'm personally, I'm about power. Yeah. I think power changes and then people follow, right? So mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I, they yeah. change the situation people are in and, and people change. Um, I, I want to shift a little bit. This is something I talk about with a lot of the people that come on. Um, right now, there's something special going on in this country, good or bad. We can talk about what the nature of it is, but clearly there's a recognition of um, the deep racial injustice in this country. Right now, there's a, a movement going on that by some accounts is the biggest social movement in the country's history in terms of the number of people who have been engaged. Um, do you think this time will be different 
right? I say different because it's not like we haven't had movements before, right? It's not like we haven't been at some version of a precipice. And as soon as we cross over into trying to make change, there's a, a backlash, a retrenchment of, of the power that existed before. Do you think this time is going to be different? If so, why? So, of course, I think each of these moments are different in different ways. And this may look like to some people that we are in this like new mo movement, but at each point in time, I remember having conversations about sort of that, you know, the movement had lost its energy after Ferguson. I had heard it after Trayvon. I kept after Baltimore. And in each time, like the movement was building, learning from what had happened the last time, building energy, finding ways to build power. In 16, very few of the movement organizations did voter contact work. We're out talking to, to voters. This time, everyone's out talking to voters and engaging voters for a candidate that most of us don't like. Um, and we're doing it because we've like recognized a whole set of sort of dynamics around power, but we've also built and grown and engaged together um, in a different way. So that sort of, um, I think is one thing about sort of this moment, which I think is different. But the thing I will say that we're in, not the same rule change moment as the, the Lewis era and the King era, and, is I think we're in a, a moment of deep cultural change, changing of cultural rules, changing of cultural dynamics, some of the ways in which the new understanding of structural racism, and I think you sort of had this baked into your question around this moment we're in. I think this cultural change, if we can solidify it, if we can build the narrative infrastructure to like uh, defend it, if we can build the sort of support for the culture makers and the creatives, if we can uh, support um, employee organizing and movement organizing inside of corporations to make new demands, if we can change the sort of rules and the larger culture, what will end up happening is that we can solidify those through public policy. But that also requires infrastructure that can hold institutions accountable, that can help people develop those demands, that can evaluate them and be able to build upon them. So I do think that we are in a deep moment of change. I think it looks different than the 60s, um, but I think that it can lead us to something where we get the next set of rules, whether it's universal basic income, whether it's healthcare for all, whether it's the things that will actually make a society where more of us have an opportunity uh, to win the fruits of our labor, to actually be able to participate in our economy and to have a democracy that, you know, is a democracy. That's, I, I appreciate your optimism. I feel like you're more optimistic than I am. And here, here's, I'll, I'll say a little bit about why. So you mentioned the 60s, which was a, obviously a deep moment of, of rule change in a way that we, we probably are not quite there yet. That's yeah. not, we've not generated right. that. But there was also an incredible retrenchment that, that thwarted a lot of the, the benefits of those changes, right? So we saw, we've seen the wealth gap between black and white families grow over the last say 10 years. We've seen the ed segregation education, even though it's not legal, is as deep as it was um, in the 60s and 70s by many accounts, right? So it's, I guess I wonder how do you prevent that kind of retrenchment, right? So you change the rules and then people find ways to subvert the change those rules are designed to produce. Like how do you prevent that? 
um, this is going to be some of the work and the challenge of the future. I am optimistic. I'm optimistic because I think racial justice is such a clear and salient winner. And in the early days of the pandemic, the best that people on the left thought we could do in terms of getting people to show up and be activated was clapping out of our windows at seven o'clock at night or lifting up um, investigative journalism on our um, social media fades and complaining about what was happening. And it was racial justice that actually got people out into the streets that actually, I think in some ways, shifted the conversation around this moment, even around COVID. Racial justice is the uh, clearest force multiplier for the type of change that we need to see in the world. All of the movements that have caught steam, at the heart of them, they've been at their best when they've been able to have a strong racial justice framework that has been able to drive them and drive them success. It's the racial justice movement that allow us to, to begin to change prosecutor offices. I believe that if we are gonna get a new social compact around um, safety nets, like, you know, that's at scale from like where we had social security and other things, it is gonna have to be racial justice movements that drive it, that fight for it, that bring people in. And it'll be racial justice that get people into the streets to win it. And so, you know, that's why I'm optimistic because I actually believe that we have a winning argument. I also believe that we have a movement of leaders, a movement of institutions that have done things that people never believed that we could do. And I hope that we can stay in it long enough and stay focused long enough that we don't run into some of the same pitfalls of being accepted into institutions and thinking that by our mere presence, those institutions change. It doesn't mean that we don't get inside those institutions when we can, but we have to recognize those institutions in and of themselves will not change with our presence because presence alone isn't power. I'm happy you brought up the idea of racial justice as a winner. So I know that you've um, made the argument that a win for Black people, and I take that as broadly understood as a win for racial justice, is a win for everyone. And so help me make that argument to someone who sees it as a zero-sum situation, right? I'm a, I'm a white guy. I see some, it's a win for racial justice. That looks like a loss for me. Like, why would I accept that as a win for everyone? Why, do I, why, is, why am I going to believe this story you're selling me about? This is a win for everyone. Like, what, is, what does that look like? Well, look, our country is going back into another shutdown because of racial injustice. We've left communities um, exposed. We have targeted, attacked, exploited Black folks. The failures to build and support infrastructure uh, for everyone is going to be the detriment. COVID is a perfect example. The upcoming sort of crisis with climate and so many others are going to expose the way that inequality doesn't just hurt those who have been targeted and exploited, but will really hurt everyone. That's coming. And yes, I think that Black people win, everyone wins. I also think that for other oppressed people, that the wins for Black people have lifted their boats. When we undo those things and we create new systems, we create systems where um, we can get closer to um, more people having an opportunity to achieve. 
And I actually think that that is going to make for a society that's better, stronger, um, and more whole for everyone. So we have people who are business school students, people who are leaders in business, people who are just going about their day-to-day life in the community that will hear you. What would you have them do beyond the things that I think people are already understand, donate, vote? What should people do as individuals to contribute to the kind of society that you're talking about? So a couple of things. One, far too often we tell stories that are unfortunate, making inequality seem like almost a car accident. And so what ends up happening is that we get charitable solutions to structural problems. It's not that Black people are less likely to get loans from the bank. It's that banks are less likely to give loans to Black people. So let's not focus on more financial literacy programs alone. Let's actually change the structures of banks, which have targeted, exploited, and redlined Black people since the very beginning. I say that as one of many examples around how we can move from talking about issues in passive voice where we spend our time trying to fix oppressed people rather than fixing the systems and structures which have oppressed us. And so everyone who's watching can go into the places where they work right now, look around and look at the systems and actually then focus on fixing the structures. This is cultural change for us thinking that it's not that there's something wrong with Black people. There is something wrong with the systems and the structures which have targeted and exploited Black people. And so if I get more people doing that, then I actually build momentum to change policy over time because people will recognize where investments actually have to be placed and how we fix systems that have hurt um, and harmed people. Yes. We need doers, donors, and door openers at Color of Change, and we always will. But I actually need more folks in their individual spaces being leaders on social change. And social change is not just helping communities deal with the sort of barriers that have stood in their way. It's actually being active participants in removing the barriers that have stood in communities' ways. And that is actually how we get to more justice. That's how you move from being complicit with the Amy Coopers in Central Park to being on the right side of history and being able to look 5, 10, 15 years from now and say, hey, I was part of actually making systemic and structural change. The other thing I will say, and I think this is important, is that We are in this moment where we're seeing a lot of horrible things about race, black pain on TV, on our screens. We're seeing it from COVID to some of the rhetoric in the election to of course, the uprisings around racial justice and policing. And as much as we wanna talk about black pain, we should also center black joy. And black joy is not the absence of pain, but the presence of aspiration. It's not just what we are fighting against, but what we are fighting for. And imagine if we could tell stories that weren't just in the deficit about Black communities. Imagine if when we talk about voting in this election right now, we don't start off with whether or not Black people will vote, but we talk about the fact that Black people are the protagonists in the American story of democracy. What is a protagonist? It is someone who's fought hard, overcome barriers, still succeeding in spite of all the obstacles put in their way. That is a protagonist. And so in the American story of voting, um, education, and so many other things where Black people have literally had to overcome threats and death to succeed, let's tell those stories 
of the community being protagonists. It's not a story of low turnout. It's a story of high suppression. And how do we remove high suppression to actually unlock the potential? Those are some things that sort of in the everyday person level we can do that actually flip on its head how we think about the problems and hopefully get us to a different type of solution. Rashad provided an incredible example of a commitment to a fight for justice that he's waged for the last 22 years. A fight for justice that might not have an end. And we wondered what kind of life philosophy could sustain us through such a multi-generational, possibly never-ending fight. I think our society codes us to pursue an outcomes orientation, I guess. We're raised thinking about the external signifiers that validate the work that we do from the grades that you get in middle school or whatever through your like job promotions and everything else. This is actually a conversation that I feel like we've been having a lot, like whether or not we should be measuring our life by the outcomes or like our faithfulness to the labor itself. Why can't we just measure like the efforts that we're putting in instead of paying so close attention to the to the results? I hope that the next time you wonder why you're fighting and it's costing you dearly, you will remember what motivates you and you will see the beauty in your struggle. You've been listening to Leadership for Society, Race and Power, the podcast series. This show is produced by Stanford Graduate School of Business and our theme music is composed by Belief. For more episodes in this series, make sure to subscribe to the Leadership for Society podcast.